0: 2 Samuel, chapter 11 tonight. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. When we were in 2 Samuel a couple of weeks ago, we saw David at his peak, really, of his uh, military endeavors uh, and also in his reign of Israel. Things were going very, very well for him. He won many victories Uh, The territories that he had taken were expansive. Most of the nations around Israel were vassal states submitting themselves by paying tribute to David. Much wealth had come into the kingdom as a result of all of this. And now in chapter 7, we turn the tables on David and go to his most terrible, bad experience of his entire life. And it's not because somebody came and did him harm. He did it to himself. And as a result of what he does in chapter 11, the rest of Second Samuel is going to reflect the terrible things that will take place in the remainder of David's life. But here we are in chapter 11 tonight, and we're going to be looking at, as you must already know, his encounter with a very beautiful woman named Bathsheba. It begins in chapter 11, verse 1, with this statement. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, which would have been Ammon's capital city. But David remained at Jerusalem. Take note of the fact that it starts out by saying it happened in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, and the reason that is stated is because David didn't go out to battle as would normally have been expected of him as a king of Israel. The spring of the year was a much better time than winter because in the winter time it was uh, very difficult to move troops, um, and in, in the spring the ground had. Uh, Firmed up, it wasn't a muddy season that they had to deal with anymore, and it was a very, very much better time if they're going to go to war to do it in the springtime than in the, the summer when it was too hot or the winter when the uh, territories that they're trying to move across would be very difficult terrain to move in. And so this statement that is being made here tells us that David should have gone with his army, to fight against the Ammonites. Now, the reason they're going to fight against the Ammonites ties back to chapter 10, where we left off the last time, where it talks about the fact that the nation of Ammon had come against Israel, and the armies of Israel had conquered both the Ammonites by driving them back into their walled city, and also the mercenaries that came against Israel that were hired by the Ammonites. But because they did not actually have a complete victory militarily over the Ammonites, only that they had moved them back into their walled cities, now Joab is taking his troops into Ammon to kind of finish the job. David should have gone with him. David remained in Jerusalem. And this is the story of idleness on the part of David. For it tells us in verse 2, Then it happened on one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. By the way, this is the only time in the Old Testament scriptures where a woman is mentioned as being very beautiful. And so certainly she must have been a very attractive woman. She was on the roof of her house bathing. Which isn't no, not, it's not really abnormal for that to take place in that culture. Uh, the roof was actually a place where they could set up a patio or garden, uh, in the cool of the evening. It was a place for them to be able to gather their families or do things like washing clothes or in this case, taking a bath. Whether or not she was doing it with the intent of letting others see her, is not answered in the scripture and there's no reason for us to assume anything wrongly or otherwise about Bathsheba. It just simply states that she was a beautiful woman and she was on the roof of her house taking a bath. David happens to see her because he happens to go out on the roof in that coolness of the even evening and his house overlooked her house And he could see her, and he looked upon her, unfortunately, and it resulted in something that should never have taken place. Verse 3 tells us that David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? It's interesting to note, before we move further, that this woman was married to a non-Jew, a Hittite. He was a warrior in David's army. In fact, he's listed in another place as one of the 30 mighty men of David. Very high up in David's eyes as far as his value as a warrior for the nation of Israel. And although he wasn't a Jew, he apparently was a faithful convert to Judaism, as we will see as we move forward. But his wife Bathsheba was a Jewess. She was the daughter of a man named Eliam. And if you go to 1 Chronicles and you can look up the lineage of this man Eliam, it tells us that his father was Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel happens to be one of David's counselors, an advisor to David, a trusted friend for many, many years. So, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. Keep that in mind, because that will play into the story much later on as we go further into our study of 2 Samuel. But for now, we just know that simply this woman, being a very beautiful woman, bathing on a roof, was attractive to David in a very, very sensual sort of way. And David sent the messengers, in verse 4 it says, and he took her, and she came to him, And he lay with her. He had sexual relations with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and then she returned to her house. Now, it's apparent that what is being stated here is that she was able to take a bath because she had completed the seven days of ritual after the normal cycle of a woman. It was required by the law in Moses for the woman to purify herself through a Ritual of seven days of cleansing. She had done that before she comes into David. Now, in some of your translations, it seems to imply that when she had cleansed herself, she returned to the house. But I don't believe it is a correct way of looking at the original language as we uh, read this text. The context seems to imply that she had been cleansed of her impurity when she went to David. Now that tells us that probably within the next three or four weeks, she would know if there is a result in this sexual encounter with regard to pregnancy. And as it turns out, although we're not told the number of weeks that followed, we can assume that it's at least three to four weeks later that the woman realizes she conceived. And so verse 5 simply tells us, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David said, sent to Joab, who was in the field, fighting against the Ammonites, and he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, David realizes he's in trouble. He has impregnated Uriah's wife. So now he's got to either confess to this, which is what he should have done, as difficult as that may have been, or find a way to avoid any accusations of anyone with the exception of those who knew what he had done. Very difficult to hide a sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us very clearly, you can be sure your sin will find you out. There's no question in my mind, I hope there's none in yours, that this was not something that, was overlooked by God. It certainly is not the case. And we'll see as we move forward that there is a great deal of trouble ahead for David as a result of his actions with Bathsheba and also especially with those things that he's going to be doing next. So he asked Joab to send Uriah and Uriah comes. It says in verse 7, when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was prospered. Now, he, he's basically small talking with, with uh, Uriah. He doesn't really have any interest in much of any of this. He has a goal in mind. He has a purpose in inviting Uriah to his castle. And it tells us in verse 8 what that purpose is. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. David had hoped that Uriah would go home to Bathsheba. Having been away for a period of time, he would have wanted to have a relation with his wife, and having been willing to do so, if he had done that, then David would be off the hook, so to speak. The pregnancy could not be attributed to David if it could be attributed instead to Uriah. And rightly so. Uriah was her husband. And he was away for a period of time, so it makes good sense for David to maybe think that this was a way out of his predicament. But Uriah didn't do it. Verse 9 says, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, Now listen to this noble servant of God as he speaks, the reason for his not having done so. Uriah said to David, verse 11, The ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul is? I will not do this thing. He was such a great example of nobility, of great character. A Gentile respecting the laws of the Jewish people. Amazing that this man was so very devoted and faithful to his king and to the general that he served. Well, verse 12, David didn't stop. It tells us then, David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David thought that perhaps if he got him drunk, he would then lower his standards, if you will, and go back home and kind of sleep off his drunken state. Well, he didn't do that. He stayed by David's house with the other soldiers. So in the morning, it tells us in verse 14, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Well, okay, David said, I can't get Uriah to do this. I've got no alternative but to write a letter. And we now know the contents of that letter. It tells us in verse 15, he wrote the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him, that he may be struck down and die. Now, Joab will not know the reason for David's making this terribly, very immoral request. But he's going to obey the king. Unfortunately, one of those things that Joab has done in this story, or will be doing in this story, is becoming complicit in the murder of an innocent man. The word of God, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, tells us that thou shalt not kill. David, in essence, is going to kill Uriah. Perhaps not by his hand, but as far as God is concerned, David is the one who is responsible for the death of this man. So thou shalt not kill one of those Ten Commandments that David is going to break. Thou shalt not commit adultery. David has already committed adultery. Both of those are capital punishment crimes in the nation of Israel during this time. David, having done both of these, if he were to be found out, should be killed. Verse 16 tells us, So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there was Valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. So notice that it's not just Uriah that has lost his life as a result of David's infidelity. Also several of the other men, warriors, that Joab sent into the battle with Uriah up against the wall of the Ammonites in a very dangerous place. And then withdrew his army, knowing that several men would die. He was obedient to what David had instructed him to do. How difficult was it for Joab to have accomplished this? Perhaps we'll get a picture of that later on in our study tonight. But verse 18 says Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the king, of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubisheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you should say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab is anticipating the reaction of David in this message to the servant that he's sending to David. But he also includes the final statement that the messenger must make clear to David, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So verse 22 tells us, The messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field, Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate, and the archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. He apparently didn't even wait for David to inquire why they went so close to the wall. But it says in verse 25, Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Send this message back to the general. He says, Do not let this thing displease you, and the word for displease you is, be evil in your sight. David knew that it was an evil thing that he had just asked Joab to do. But he's saying to the messenger, do not let this thing displease you or be evil in your sight. For the sword devours one as well as another. Come see, come sa, say la vie. You know, David is trying to make light of the situation by saying, it happens in every war. Don't be too awfully hard on yourself, Joab. And he goes on to say, Strengthen your attack, in the remainder of the message of Joab, against the sea, and overthrow it. And Saul encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, as David had said in his message to Uriah, do not let this thing displease you. It's the same Hebrew word here with regard to God's opinion of what David had just done. The word translated in my translation that he displeased the Lord is also translated, it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it certainly was. I'd like also to take note of the fact that Instead of mentioning Bathsheba by name in verse 26, it mentions her as the wife of Uriah. And I find that interesting because there are several places where in this context she is referred to as the wife of Uriah. By name only twice in chapters 11 and 12. But the wife of Uriah, is the reference that the Spirit of God prefers to use with regard to this woman. In fact, if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, and you don't have to go there, I'll just tell you what it says. It tells us the lineage of Jesus Christ and mentions Bathsheba, but not by name, inference only. She is the wife of Uriah instead of. Bathsheba in Matthew's Gospel, who gave birth to a son whose name is Solomon. We'll get to that later on in our study here tonight in chapter 12. But keep in mind that the Spirit of God apparently doesn't really want to emphasize her name for whatever reason, although she will again be named in the context of Solomon's birth that one time in chapter 12. But David has done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And any sin must be dealt with. As far as God is concerned, David needed to be judged for his sin by the Lord. There is a great discipline that will come upon him. The Lord loved David. And he whom the Lord loves... He chastens. And that is no different for David the king as it is for any one of us as well. It's not to excuse the sins that David committed. They are indeed heinous crimes against humanity. But we'll see that the reason that it is such a terrible thing is not that it was a crime against Bathsheba, and it was. It's not that it was against Uriah, and it certainly was. It's not that he was sinning against Joab, and he did. By the way, that was also part of the commandments of God not to bear false witness, and that's exactly what he was doing. He disobeyed the Lord on many counts in this series of actions that he has taken. And now we find, after a period of time, though David thinks that perhaps nobody else is aware, God certainly is and in God's time discipline will take place in the form of God's chastening against his servant David the one who is said to be a man after God's own heart the apple of his eye in fact later on in the book of uh, first chronicles we find God speaking to Solomon who had sinned greatly against the Lord also and left his God to follow after other gods. And God spoke to Solomon near the end of his time as king of Israel and said, you have not followed after your father David in the ways of your father David. And because of that, God is angry with Solomon. So David will be forgiven. So is it for you and for me. Whatever sins that we may have committed in our life, or may commit in the future, they are forgiven because our God is merciful, our God is full of grace and truth, and His Word declares to us that if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David does indeed confess his sins. But during the time of Bathsheba's pregnancy, he was not experiencing any amount of joy. He was a very troubled man. In fact, if you turn with me to Psalm 32, you'll see some of that which David had experienced during this very, very difficult time as he was struggling with the sin that he had committed, not knowing what to do. But he also begins chapter 32 of the book of Psalms, with a great statement of truth. He tells us in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, David is writing this after his experience in this terrible place of depression and sadness and torment of his soul. But he says in verse 3, and this is what I wanted to point out to you, he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He goes on to praise the Lord for his forgiveness and for his mercy. But here in chapter 12, we find David in that state of terrible torment of soul. And it tells us in verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks of herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one of those for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him." Nathan is telling what is actually a story, but as far as David is concerned, he does not know this. It was the place of the king to judge certain matters that were brought before the king. And this was a matter that perhaps David thought Nathan was bringing to him, a true story that had taken place that Nathan was reporting to him to seek David's opinion as to what needed to be done to this rich man who had done such evil against his neighbor. So, verse 5, David gives his judgment. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Now it is true that under the law, anyone who steals a lamb of another person, when he is found out, must restore fourfold. So David's judgment with regard to taking four of this man's lambs and giving it to the poor man is indeed according to the law of Moses. But there was no provision in the law regarding the death of one who stole a lamb. This is David's judgment and is a very severe judgment against a man that he thought was worthy of death because of the terrible thing that he has just done to his neighbor. And then, Nathan says in verse 7, You are the man. Oh, what those words must have done in David's heart. He turned from anger to a sudden disgust of his self because he realized that this was a story that Nathan had brought to his attention to point out to David what he had done. He thought it was done in secret, but now it's been revealed. But all of this time, he has been terribly tormented over his sinful nature, according to Psalm 32. And now that he has been found out, Nathan tells David, this is God's response to what you have done, David. Verse 7 says, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And... If that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. God said, listen, David, I anointed you, I delivered you, and I gave you abundantly. Why do you think you needed more than what I had provided for you? And in verse 9, he tells us the question of the Lord. Why have you devised or despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife." Again, not mentioning Bathsheba by name. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun. The consequences of sin are laid out for us. God judges David. He doesn't take David's life, although that should have been, according to the law, what was done to David, on two counts. But instead, he tells David that the rest of his life are going to be severe, terrible, awful times. He'll be king of Israel for another some 20 or so years. And he will not find anything like what he experienced in those first several years of his reign. He had become a great man, a very wealthy man. He will continue to be a great king, and very wealthy king. But trouble will come to his house, as the Lord has spoken. The sword will not depart from your house, he tells David. And that is exactly what will play out as we read further on into the story. Several of his sons are going to meet with terrible death. One of his sons is going to rebel against him and take his throne from him and go into his own concubines, just as the Word of God tells us here. It will take place. Things are not going to go well for David, but he never leaves his God. He realizes his sin. He recognizes the fact that judgment was necessary. And he doesn't complain about the judgment at all. It tells us in verse 13, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And hence the writing of chapter 32 that we read earlier. God's forgiveness is given And he forgives our transgressions. And he does not remember our iniquities. But also, one of the greatest of the Psalms that David has written for our benefit is Psalm 51. And many of you are familiar with that Psalm. I'm going to read portions of it as a reminder of how David responded to the forgiveness of God. How David realized that, yes, he had indeed sinned against God. God. He says it here again in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, he had sinned against Bathsheba, as we said earlier. Yes, we had sinned against Uriah and against Joab and against the people of Israel, against his servants, those who he tried to keep a secret from all of these months before Nathan had come to him. But Psalm 51 tells us the result of all of these things with regard to David's forgiveness by God. He tells us in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness; According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my sin, my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only I have sinned, and done evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Oh, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that my bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. O oh, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit." He is praying the prayer of a man of faith, believing that God does indeed forgive. And that God does indeed acknowledge that confession of sin. And David realizes that God answers that prayer. But he also realizes that the punishment that is about to be meted out is done because God will not overlook sin. I've often mentioned, and I love the illustration, of taking a nice, well-planed piece of wood polished sanded down really really smooth finished product and then you take a 16 penny nail and you take a 22 pound hammer and you take that 16 penny nail and you drive that 16 penny nail with that heavy hammer into that beautiful wood and then you take the claws of that hammer and you rip that nail out of that wood that wood was beautiful before the nail penetrated. And that nail penetrating the wood is like what sin does in our souls. It does a great deal of damage to that which was nice, smooth, without blemish. But now it is indeed a very, very blemished piece of wood. And even though the nail has been removed, the imprint of the nail remains. That's the consequence of sin. That's the consequence of sin. And verse 14 says, however, Nathan continues, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. So Nathan gives... The judgment of God. And it begins with the death of the baby that's in Bathsheba's womb. But he also says something in verse 14 that I find very, very important as well. Our testimony when we sin is no different than David's testimony when he sinned. Take a look again at verse 14 where it says, Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. People on the outside looking in at those of us who are faithful believers in Jesus Christ, when we fall into sin, they take note of it. And it is very, very likely that our sin is going to be what they take and spread that all over everywhere they can to discredit Christianity, to discredit you and I to discredit God, to blaspheme the name of God. Oh, how terrible sin can be. And we have many examples of that in leadership as well as in the clergy or not clergy of many, many different churches throughout our land and elsewhere throughout the ages. Men within the church do sin. That's why it's so important for us to deal with sin and deal with it in a proper way. David did. He confessed his sin to the Lord. It tells us, as a consequence then, that David, at the end of verse 15, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. A note again, a reference not to Bathsheba by name, but Uriah's wife. Verse 16 says, David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm to himself. And when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, Yes, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and prayed. I fasted and I wept. The reason for that is because he knew that the child was going to die, but he was pleading to the Lord to perhaps change his mind if he would be so willing to do. And even though David knew the judgment of God was that the child was to die, David interceded on behalf of that child, hoping and praying that the child would remain. For when the child died, he realized. I said, who can tell where the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? That was his goal. That was his hope. That was his prayer. But now that he is dead, verse 23, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In other words, David is anticipating a time when he will see that child in eternity. This verse, verse 23 is a very, very commonly used verse by many expositors to indicate that children under the age of accountability, whatever that age of accountability might be, and that's a question that nobody can really answer with certainty, but we can assume that if a child dies before that child has any cognitive ability to recognize the things of God, that God, in His mercy, will not cause that child to go to eternal punishment. There's no need for that child to be punished for that child has not yet knowledgeably sinned against the Lord. So, many expositors, I'm one of those who believes that this verse is a verse that tells us that children go to be with the Lord if they die. And that's why I'm convinced that all of those abortions that have taken place all over the world, are filling heaven with babies that weren't able to speak for themselves. And I'm convinced that they are there with the Lord. Babies that die at an early age, one year, two years, three, however many years before they can really make sense out of what is sin and who is God, I believe that God's mercy is upon them in the same way. So that's what David was saying here. I cannot, or rather, he cannot go to me, but I will go to him. Verse 24 says, And David comforted Bathsheba. This is the only place, again, where her name is mentioned specifically. David comforted Bathsheba. She lost her first child by David, but he comforted his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The word Jedidiah simply means beloved of the Lord. The word Solomon means peace. David had been in torment all of this time, but now that Solomon is born, by Bathsheba, his wife, he finds a peace knowing that God has indeed forgiven his sins. And God is pleased when Nathan comes to give this message to David, I also am pleased with this one who has been born. He will be used by God and it is indeed the one who would take the throne after David passes on. And God chooses to name this one, instead of Solomon, to name him Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. The rest of the chapter turns back now to Joab. And remember I had said something about the fact that Joab was very, very concerned about what David was doing with regard to Uriah. I'm convinced that Joab did not like the fact that he was forced to comply with David's request to see that Uriah is killed in battle. And now we turn to the story back in the invasion of the city of Rabbah by Joab and his troops. they besieged the city, and it tells us in verse 26, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name instead of yours. I consider that to be very likely to be a slam by Joab against his king, David. You should have come, David, and done this yourself. But I've done it. And if you don't come now, I'm going to take the city and name it after myself. I think there's a bit of anger in Joab's intention of having David come to finish the job. Now, it also could be just out of respect for David as the king. We can't be certain about that. We're not told. Either possibility does exist. But that's my opinion with regard to Joab's response to his having had to kill a very, very faithful warrior one of David's 30 mighty men. So it tells us in verse 29, So David gathered all the people together, and he went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took the king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones. And it was set on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. So he did take the city, and that talent of gold a talent weighs about 75 pounds. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd like a hat or a crown on my head that weighed 75 pounds. I'm convinced that probably it was not anything more than for ceremonial purposes, perhaps. They placed it on his head, but I can't imagine that David kept it on his head very long. But first 31 ends the chapter with, He brought out the people who were in it and put them to work, with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brick hill, or the brick works. And so he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon, and then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So they were put into slavery for their having attempted to invade the nation of Israel. And the nation of Ammon was subservient to David and also to Solomon, Many, many years were passed before they would break away from that subserviency. So that's the story of David's downfall. The rest of this great book, as it pertains to David, is going to be mostly hardship for him. These last 20 or so years of David's kingship are going to be very, very difficult years indeed. And it's all because of what took place in chapter 11. And there's one more sin that David is going to be committing that will be recorded for us much later in this book. And that is a sin that God will remember even perhaps more than this sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. That's all for tonight. God bless you all for coming. Grace and peace.